0: the signs of the times of Israel, and we looked at those, we want to press on into another area of signs, of things that we should be looking for at the end times. It's going to take us a little time to go through it, um, and uh, I had a couple others that were more brief, but I think I'm going to tackle this one first, since we have associated it with Israel. Um, before we get into this, let's go, Lord, and pray together this evening. Lord God, would we thank you for your love for us, we thank you for the opportunity to look in your word tonight, and we pray that your hand might be upon us, that we might... Uh, be instructed, that we might also be encouraged and challenged by uh, the evidence that you've laid out of when the latter days, what is the time period of the day of the Lord. And uh, Lord, we uh, certainly aren't about to try to isolate it down to a specific uh, date, but Lord, you have given us this warning. To prepare us so that we are alert, that we are on guard in our own hearts and lives and in our world, that your church might be ready to receive you, and Lord, while we see uh, a a lack in many categories there, uh, we pray that we might be found uh, taking this to heart as a means of uh, Looking for your soon return. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we talked about Israel as a nation, and and we talked about the signs of the times of of Israel. I'm not going to go through and rehearse those if you want to get the uh, podcast from the last three or four weeks. I think it's three weeks we've done uh, with that and handled it and tried to just represent what God said would happen to Israel that we stand in a position where that has largely occurred. Um, We looked last week at the Temple Mount, and uh, we concluded that uh, the construction of a temple was not really in Scripture, something the church age was to look for. Um, It is possible to happen in the church age, but it is never stipulated that will happen in the church age. So... um, Because of that, I'm not necessarily uh, anticipating it, but it is ready, the space is ready, the climate is getting ready very quickly, Uh, and we're going to be talking about the treaty in a few weeks. After we get done with this section, we're going to talk about um, the man of sin and the treaty particularly, uh, and uh, focusing on that, because that is something the Bible directly states for us to be looking for, is the revelation of the man of sin. And you find very few pastors and prophecy teachers really emphasizing that, which is difficult to understand when the Bible specifically tells you to look for him. Um, The reason they are seeking to avoid that is because of some uh, false identifications in the past. And that's going to be true today as well as what we're going to be talking about today. is we're going referring to, what, what does the Bible say about the nations? Because that it plays into a large measure of prophecy in terms of the chronology coming up to Christ's coming. Uh, we are to look around at the macro world of politics. And I'm not talking about who wins this election. I'm not going to refer to that. I'm not referring to anything along that line. Uh, we're not microcasting. We are Macro, what is the big picture that God's Word paints? And we're going to try to start off that study by saying what it doesn't paint. Uh, what are we not looking for? And I, for some of you who are new believers, a lot of my material tonight um, in this first half of this is going to be kind of uh, really? Uh, why is that a thing? Because you haven't been exposed maybe to historical prophecy teaching. Um, and, and so count your blessings, okay? (laughs) You don't have that, that baggage that you're carrying along with you. But for those of us who have grown up in church for the last 40 years or so, um, we have gotten a lot of this information, especially during the Cold War. Um, and this has been the way that a prophecy has been really going back all the way, um, into World War One and Two, even. Uh, the prophecy teachers, if you pick up their books from those time periods, um, you'll see them talking about fascism, you'll see them during the Cold War talk about communism, and they go into God's word. And it's no surprise that right now, in the, in the mainstream pre mill movement right now, the big energy is being put towards God's word in identifying Islam as the end times enemy. And... Uh, this is right in line with the historical pattern that we have, that uh, is driving prophetic teaching that we want to avoid. We want to go to God's word and see what it says, and look around then, not look around then go to God's word. That's the wrong way to do it. And so here's what happened, and I'm just gonna—I'm not gonna go back into uh, Hitler's fascism and all of that 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 milieu. Uh, I wasn't alive then, it didn't impact my life and I'm not going to be able to speak directly to it, Um, but I was around during the Cold War um, and I did hear what the prophecy teachers had to say. And here's where they focused our attention. They focused our attention on the book of Ezekiel and they took us toward the end of the book of Ezekiel to the reference to a great battle and they warned us and forewarned us many times about this great battle that was looming on the prophetic horizon and uh, of course that battle we recognize or hopefully you might already hear those names and say oh yeah i know what that is referring to uh and that's the battle of gog and Magog. and that is in ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 and so ezekiel 38 and 39 describe this uh rising up of um th- Gog out of the land of Magog, and we find uh, in chapter 38, verse 2, this reference. Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, I'll turn you around Put hooks in your jaws and lead you out with all your army, horses, horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them hanging, handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all its troops, the house of Tog- Togarma from the far north, and with this truth, many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready. You and all your com- companies that are gathered about you and be a guard for them. After many days, you will be visited In the latter years you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day shall come to pass. The thoughts will rise in your mind, and you will make an evil plan." And you will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against the people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. Sheba, Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish, all their young lions will say to you, Have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to God, Thus says the Lord God on that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. You will come against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O God, before their eyes. Thus says the Lord God, are you he of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them. And then it goes on to talk about the fact that God is going to judge them in their fury, in his fury. And, uh, uh, and it says in verse 19 there's going to be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. Uh, that, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence, the mountains shall be thrown down, steep places shall fall, every wall shall fall to the ground. I'll call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord, every man's sword will be against his brother. And it goes on, describes the punishment and the destruction of Gog, going into chapter 39. Uh, and then in verse 11 of chapter 39, we have the burial Uh, described, that they're going to go through the land and purge the land. They're going to have to seek those places out. Search parties are going to be sent out throughout the land to try to find the dead and make sure they're buried uh, ceremonially to clean the land, to cleanse it. So we went into this passage, and of course in Ezekiel, this passage comes prior to a description of a new temple and a new city in chapters 40 and following, which is extensive. And so they looked at this and said, well, Israel's gathered from the nations, so she's regathered. And they saw that already happened in the 1940s. And so they said, well, Israel's now fulfilled that prophecy. And so here's what we're going to be looking for is this Gog-Magog uprising. And that's what we should be looking for to building towards. We're going to be building towards these, this Gog uprising with all these other nations, and several specifically, and here's what we did. We went into verse 2 of chapter 38, and we found Russian cities that sounded like Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. That's exactly what we did. We found Russian cities that sounded like those. Tubolsk. Doesn't that sound like Tubal? And we then inserted the idea that this is referring to communist USSR, the Soviet Union, that they will gather together, and of course their, uh, uh, alignment with Persia and Ethiopia and Libya, um, that are listed there in verse 5, Iran and Libya and Persia, Persia is Iran, Libya and Ethiopia, and that the communists are going to, um, basically draw in all the nations And it's going to really be up to Israel to defend herself against this communist horde. And it was incumbent upon us as a church to recognize that this is the growing evil out of the far north that we should be looking for at the end times. And everybody got very excited. um, And and it drew up a great groundswell within the Christian community against godless, after all it was godless, communism, um, that... uh, Uh, which I didn't understand, I was inconsistent as well, because if you want them to get strong for the end times, you don't oppose them. Because you want them to do what the Bible says for them to do, right? So you shouldn't oppose godless communism. If they are the end times baddie that's going to do this, you really want them to succeed, because that's the end. It's kind of like today. Why are you trying to oppose the man of sin? The Bible says he can't be opposed. Christians shouldn't be trying to oppose him. We, We just stand in our position. That alone is opposition against him. Uh, we shouldn't try to thwart him um, because him doing his work is to our benefit. It's the end of the age. And so, but nonetheless, they were able to rise up this the church, engage in this um, activity versus communism as, uh, you know, that that's uh, just creating this godless society and it's going to sweep the world and turn us into darkness that's described here. The problem was, of course, the chronology of Ezekiel, is it's all based upon the temple described in Ezekiel being a temple that's on earth in the current circumstances. And of course, it can't be. We talked about that last week. Uh, the geography described here requires radical changes to the geography of Israel, and therefore it couldn't happen in our, our current setting. Um, the other thing they totally and completely blew off and ignored was Revelation. Because this isn't the only place that Gog and Magog is referred to. Uh, Revelation very clearly talks about Gog and that battle. And it's not the battle of Armageddon that we are talking about here. Um, That is a true battle that is going to occur um, at the end of the days of wrath. But if we um, go over to Revelation chapter 20... We have Satan bound up for a thousand years, and Christ reigns for a thousand years. And then we come to verse 7. So this obviously makes Gog Magog after the thousand years. It says, now when the thousand years had expired, Satan will be released. This is verse 7 of chapter 20 of Revelation. Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations who are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil deceived them was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever. I might look at this and say, well, it doesn't quite sound identical But we still have this reference that Gog and Magog are engaged in this, the final conflict of the nations against God at the end of the thousand years. Now, there is something that happens in prophecy that's a near-far fulfillment, that is that we have a near fulfillment um, that uh, projects a later one, and uh, some have said, well, that's what's referred to here, and so Gog and Magog are going to be resurrected, it's going to revert back to them there. um, But I cannot find that connection. I cannot find that um, description or any evidence of that. And so uh, that's what we did. And that's where we have been, really, until the 1990s. And then something horrible happened in the 1990s for prophecy teachers. The Soviet Union disbanded. Well, then it was just Russia. Russia alone would still have this dominant influence Um, And Russia has just steadily declined, really, in its influence. It's still very influential, don't get me wrong there, but it has declined. And now the new enemy of the world is no longer communism. In fact, uh, one of the most powerful communist countries to this day on the planet today is our most favored nation called China. Yes, they possess most favored nation status with us on economic trade. So they get none of their goods um, tariffed. So um, the war really wasn't against communism, was it? If it was, we wouldn't be doing business with China like we are. Um, That really never was the issue. And so when we look at um, this, we look around now and say, well, who's our country's enemy And the enemy now are terrorists and Muslim terrorists. And so it's no surprise that for the last eight years or so, we have been inundated with interesting translations of Scripture that draw us out that that's the end times bad guy we're supposed to be looking for all along during the church age. Now, the other thing that I heard a lot when I was young was about this European Union thing. How many of you remember that, old-timers? Remember, the, you're looking for this 10-member European Union. And I uh, heard a lot about that when the Euro started being formulated, and uh, a problem quickly occurred with that as well. What was the problem? They zoomed right past 10 nations in a r- real quick time. I mean, just boom, and they were over 10 nations. They're like, oh, well, now what, what do we do with this? Um, again derived from some passages of Scripture and making some assumptions about a revived Roman Empire. How many of you have heard prophecy teachers talk about a revived Roman Empire? A few of you? No, not as much? A revived Roman Empire was what we were always taught, that uh, this is something that's going to come out of Rome and, um, and of that region that Rome controlled, it's going to revive. You're going to have a ten nation union, and all that is driven out of Daniel that we're going to study and Revelation. Again, um, we've been thwarted time and again with their suppositions about God's Word. And, uh, and of course, the 10 member Union uh, was really hot and heavy, uh, really driving all the way back to the, to the World War I and two as well as the, the means of doing that. And so when we look at our nations, what are we supposed to be looking for? We've had a lot of misdirection in this area from prophecy teachers historically. And it brings us to the place, kind of like we were with Israel, about becoming a nation in 1947. Was that really the sign we were supposed to look for? No, that was the pre-sign. That, was, that, was, that presaged something else that was going to come, which was the gathering. And that's what prophecy declared. And so we want to go through, and we're going to do a careful study uh, uh, in this category of what does the Bible say about the nations in the end times and what are we looking for. And you guys know my position but I want to do this as a cluster, and I'm going to work very quickly in the next two weeks to really handle that. But I want to share with you the fundamental passages that we're dealing with, Uh, rather than looking into Ezekiel, uh, the one that tells us all about the nations. That was his primary concern as Daniel. And Daniel's interested in the nations because Daniel is not primarily concerned about Israel. Israel. Uh, Daniel was a man ministering in Babylon, in Persia, uh, under the Medes and Persians, under the Babylonians. His primary ministry was to Nebuchadnezzar, to Belteshazzar, to Darius, to these men uh, of the nations. And God gave him incredible content of what his plan was, not just in Daniel's lifetime, and not just in the lifetime of the empires that he would work with, but really for the rest of the world. He laid out a format saying, here's the rest of the world. It doesn't really start with Daniel. That's what's fascinating here. Daniel is not the initial contact <clears throat> excuse me, that we have in the book of Daniel with this prophetic uh, word. It is actually given to Nebuchadnezzar that God comes to him in that first dream in chapter 2 of Daniel and confronts him with uh, the plan of the ages. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't go to his prophet. The prophet's going to be involved, certainly, in the interpretation. But God gives the dream, the initiation of, here's what I have in store for the nations, not to Israel, but he gives it to the leader of the ruling empire of the day. And that was Nebuchadnezzar, who is going to become, through the process of Daniel's ministry in his life, a believer in the God of Israel. He's going to turn over his whole kingdom to God. And that makes him the head of gold. And so we have uh, this vision, this dream, I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, it's very disturbing to him. Uh, he needs to have it interpreted. He doesn't understand it. Daniel comes on the scene and says, you know, the Lord is the giver of dreams and the Lord is the, the one who to, from whom we're going to get interpretations. And so to the Lord's glory, I will uh, do this and I'll give you the interpretation and so we come down to chapter 2 um, verse 36 and we have I'm sorry we can back up even farther because Nebuchadnezzar was suspicious apparently and probably for good reason um, he wanted whoever was going to interpret this dream to recount the dream without him telling him kind of cool huh uh, Well, I can't remember the dream. It was just really bad and it disturbed me. So you tell me the dream and then tell me the interpretation. If you're really wise, you'll be able to have that kind of... If God's really working through you, you'll be able to do that. And Daniel does. And he recounts the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And so we can back up here and uh, pick it up uh, in verse 31. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image, this great image whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, and its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out with hands, without hands, which struck the image at its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became the great mountain became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. So I just told Nebuchadnezzar, here's the dream you had the other night. Now, we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. Verse 37. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory, and wherever the children of men dwell or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens. He has given him into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. So, good starting point. We have a chronology initiated. We know who and what we're dealing with. We're dealing with Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. Verse 39, But after you shall rise another kingdom inferior to yours, to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. So we're on to our, so we've now had a second, a third, and a fourth empire, um, over this region, the Middle Eastern region. Uh, delineated. And of course, we, because we are here, can look back and say, well, this is obviously Greece, the Medes and the Persians, I'm sorry, the Medes and the Persians, then Greece, and then Rome. Very easy. It's very identifiable. And there is really no doubt of anyone's mind of this. Um, This is pretty consistent through all all prophecy teachers. And uh, the problem comes down to these next few verses. We're all in agreement so far. So the fourth kingdom, going to crush all the others. I want you to notice that uh, there's two legs here, uh, legs of iron. But there's a fifth time period to speak of here that's wrapped up in this fourth kingdom. Let's look at it. Whereas you saw the feet and toes. Okay, this is distinct from the Legs that are of this fourth kingdom of Rome, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay, and as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay." In the days of these kings, this is real important, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break into pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as much as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in the pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king. What will come to pass after this, the dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Wow. There was no question in Daniel's mind what was going to transpire. Now, I want to ask you, in those verses that I just read, in 31 and following, did you see anything of a revival of the Roman Empire? Did anything revive? Did anything improve? Did anything get better as you went down this this image? You start with a head of gold, with the torso, the, the arms, the chest of silver, torso of bronze, legs of iron, and the feet and toes of this mixture. Did you see anything improve and strengthen? It got continually weaker and weaker and weaker down to the point of its final destruction in the division of these ten toes. And so this is a big picture. This is big, big, big macro picture of thousands of years given to Nebuchadnezzar. Here's what the nation's going to look like. Here's what the empires of the world are going to be broken down to. Now, there are some subdivisions involved in here. Certainly there are. Okay, we know what happened to the Greek Empire. It was divided into four um, under the four generals um, that, that come after Alexander the Great. And so we know that there are other divisions. This is the biggest picture. And the biggest picture we have is that we're going to go through these four empires. Then there's going to be a period of time we'll refer to them as the feet in which that empire is going to be uh, mixed. It's just it's going to be in a weakened state, and it's going to get weaker and weaker. You get out to the toes where it's going to be identified in ten nations, and it is in the time that those nations exist that God comes. And so the big prophecy question is, are all those nations existing? Now notice, it didn't say that when they come into being, it will be the end, Right? It just says that those ten nations will exist when the end comes. When Jesus comes, and he's the rock that's hewn from the stone, not made or hewn out without human hands, um, he's that rock that's going to crush them and destroy them. And so all of the empires of the earth are going to be dissolved at that point. They're going to be just crushed, uh, pulverized. And so we find no. Uh, improvement in the situation, and we don't really find any unification. In fact, what is repeated throughout Daniel here is the disunity we have, is the fragility of it all, that they are all about ready to crumble on their own without God doing anything. That this is a this is there's a, a degree of weakness here that is unprecedented uh, historically among an empire. And so one of the things we are told those we are looked for something that is connected to Rome. We are supposed to look for evidences of Rome's working and Rome's philosophies, Rome's uh, strength, her iron, is going to be in those nations. And so we come to a point of looking not for ten regions of the earth, we're looking for ten nations or kings, uh, and kings are often associated with their empires, uh, but not empires or their kings. It only works one direction, not usually the other way at all. And so we're looking for these ten who are derived not necessarily from the geography, although it's certainly implied here that it's probably that geography, particularly around uh, Israel, of the Roman Empire, that we're going to look for their philosophy, but that it's going to be mixed with other ideas and other other peoples and and other philosophies, whether Germanic or or uh, of other nations, other empires that are out there that are, that are going to be mixed in. But we're looking for the iron of Rome that's being carried forward. Well, what is the iron of Rome? Uh, is it the military? Is it the geography? Um, and I would contend, and, and I've tried to lay out some of what I think what. And historically, what some historians would say is the strength of Rome. And of course, we derive much of Western politics and Western ideas are derived directly out of Rome. And by Western, I'm talking about um, large portions of what you might consider Eastern of uh, the Byzantine side of the Roman Empire uh that we often uh, look at turkey and some of the and some of that area um but all of that all that european area and we do carry that in this country too we're built upon a representative republic uh we have a strong citizenry we have developed infrastructure uh we are committed to infrastructure and if you want to know what it's like to be in a country that is not committed to infrastructure uh you realize just how weak that makes a nation Okay, I've been to Haiti, and let me tell you, they're not committed to infrastructure, and it shows. And even in, in other, that's what I, I think essentially makes a third world country. Uh, when Bill and I were in Peru, um, we came back and said the very best thing about the United States is our bathrooms. That is the very best thing about this country, is our restrooms. Um, and uh we're committed to it and, and uh, we have the best roads I've ever seen anywhere. And and rail systems um in in Europe and and those areas. Um and I don't think we appreciate what it takes in many countries to get what we do every day. Um you're gonna some of you are commuting um, as far as some people, it might take them a day to travel that distance. And you're doing it as a commute before you go to work. Um, and uh, when Pastor Reddy talks to me about India, and he talks about, well, it's just this many kilometers away. And I used to think, well, that's not really that far. And then I realized that you can never really go much over 30 miles an hour <laughs> and so because of the roads, and as well as the traffic, but the roads. And, and when we went out to that one village and we had to... Um, get out of our car and fish it out of a hole because it couldn't drive out of that hole. Uh, we had to lift it out of that hole in India. Remember that? Oh my, the Arch of like, yeah. Um, Rome built infrastructure that still survives to this day. That's how committed they were. And the Roman roads were the connections that held that powerful empire. They could get armies anywhere in their empire that fast because of their infrastructure. They would shut down cities like Ephesus um, for a year or two to excavate their port to make sure it stayed open for their ships. That's how committed they were to infrastructure. And so when you try to say, what is the iron of Rome? It's not just one thing, but it's a whole series of things. And when you put that list together historically you start to understand what are we looking for tracing through the nations and that's going to direct our search for these ten nations uh, in that region. And so we find these and we can divide them into east and west if we want to. And I have a little chart here of what I think. But we certainly see the major players uh, in the Roman Empire period um, still... uh, there today, and yes, it does stretch out into Egypt and Jordan, and, and uh, by the way, some of the greatest Roman ruins and Greek ruins are in Jordan, um, incredible ruins they found there, of what the Romans built, and part of the Decapolis, Decapolis, the ten cities that one or two of them are in Israel, but most of them are on the other side of the Jordan, those ten cities, and they are huge, and they stand today. Uh, you go visit them, and they were some of the most impressive ruins we saw, the two cities of the Decapolis that we did visit, one in Israel, one in Jordan. And so the Romans were committed to that. And so when we think of the Roman Empire, you can't just think of Europe today. You need to think in terms of the Middle East, of of the uh, regions around there, and I would contend that, that uh, if you just take right there at uh, Athens, or, uh, I'm sorry, not... Uh, The Aegean Sea there, that if you go west, you'll find five major players. You go east, you'll find five major players today even uh, that have been around all the way back to the Roman Empire. They're certainly weakened. We don't expect them to get strong and powerful. But it is while they are still around and in this weakened state that we know Christ's coming is very close. You might say, well, that's really been going on for about a thousand years. Yes, remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream is a macro vision. Okay? We're not narrowing this down to decades or even centuries necessarily. We have a macro vision. So we're going to look at the period of these ten toes that have been going on for quite a while. We are not even close to getting to where we're identifying the very end the very end of days, but we know that if the Roman Empire has come and gone, that if the feet have come and gone, and we are down to this, this extensive division of nations among the Roman Empire, and that are all in this weakened state, that we are really getting near. And, of course, we are already there. And so that's been going on for quite some time. We could sit back and... And look back maybe even uh, a thousand years ago and say, well, that's been the case for a thousand years. And you would be correct. Um, certainly the case for the last 500 years. You would be correct. Um, and so, uh, but we're in the time period. You might say, well, so that's not a really good measure. Not of the very end, but it gets us going in that direction. That's what I want to do tonight, is get us going in that direction. This is now going to be given us, we're going to be given more specifics on this by Daniel. But I want us to see the flavor of this. God is not sitting there trying to look for ten nations going to come into a union, and when that happens, boom. No, these ten nations are going to be around for a while, but they're still going to be there when the end comes. Okay? So those people groups drawn out of of Rome, it doesn't say that they are the ones that are going to be the workers of the end times. It just says that they will still be there. First of all, Rome is gone. And so we know we're that much closer. We're already down to the feet. We can look now and see the disintegration of the Roman Empire into ten nations or more, but ten major players. Does their arrival tell us that now's the time? No. Their arrival has been here for a long, long, long time from our perspective. And it doesn't really tell us the end is here, but it does tell us that we are at that distance. That we are well into it. And the longer those toes grow the more we realize we are really close to the end. And are we all the way out there to the tips of those toes? And that's what we're going to look at. Daniel is going to be given information later on in the book about that very end times, the times of the toes. And he's going to draw that out and expand it. And we're going to be given some very specific information of what to look for about the fall of Rome and about the... the, not the rise, really, it's the decline of these ten uh, separate nations. So nowhere am I looking for, at the end times, this reunion and this, this revived Roman Empire. And it's played out a lot in novels, it's played out a lot of prophecy pictures this whole revived Roman Empire. There is no revival of the Roman Empire anywhere in prophecy declared. It is always deteriorating. It is getting worse and worse and worse to the point that um, three of those ten nations are going to be supplanted by a brand new one. We're going to look at that one next week when we move on in Daniel. And so when we come to these passages, we want to be real careful about uh, getting too excited about uh, something that we've derived out of it instead of just allowing it to speak. So Nebuchadnezzar, big vision. Big time frame. And so we're not going to be able to use it to really narrow it down to are we into the generation of the Lord's coming. But we are going to give more information that's going to narrow it down to the century in Daniel's stuff. He's going to narrow it down within a century or two. Uh, we get to Revelation, it's going to narrow it down to within a half century um, of what we should be looking for. And then we can anticipate that all the nations will be destroyed at Armageddon by Christ's coming, uh, will be conquered, and Christ's kingdom will be established. And so we have that information given to us. We're going to study it out But I really wanted to begin tonight by simply saying, when you come to the nations, um, let's be real careful. And we haven't been very careful. And it's not their fault too much. Um, They wanted the Lord to come in their generation. And I don't blame them one bit. So do I. And so they were looking around them and then going to the scriptures because they wanted it to happen in their day. Um, And that creates the error that occurred. And so there were many things that they had to either wash over, they had to spiritualize a lot of things that they saw in Scripture. They just had to say, we don't really understand what that means, but we don't have to, and, and um, that just could not have happened in their day. Things that we take for granted. Things that we just think are normal. They couldn't even imagine in their day. And so they had to bring stuff in. We're not doing that. I hope we're not doing it. If you catch me doing that, please call me on it. Okay. And so what we're looking for is not a revived Roman Empire. We're not looking for ten nations in Europe to rise up and out of them the man of sin will come. I'm not looking for that at all. I don't believe the Bible declares that at all. Um, I'm looking for a deteriorated Rome uh, with still some evidences of what made Rome great still out there Um, but lessening and lessening and getting more and more separated and uh, actually weakening. I don't see them uh, reviving. There's nothing reviving in this whole thing. They're going to just continue to weaken until they're destroyed. And we are well down that path. So now we're going to try to find out what is the end of the ages of the toes going to teach us. And we'll study that next week. Let's go Lord in prayer.